We have a tendency to be looking to the next best thing to satisfy our desires. That proverbial carrot on a stick never seems to get any closer, but we tell ourselves if we take one step closer, one more step, then it has to be closer, and we really will be making progress. This tendency is evident in just about every realm of our lives. It's the fuel behind addictions. If you're a gambler, you may not have won on this lotto ticket, which means you have a better chance for the next time, right? You can't always keep losing. Someone's got to win. Maybe you've had a bad streak of luck when it comes to investments, and so we say, try again. This time, it's going to work out well for you. Or if it's a sports team, and your team didn't do as well as planned, then take heart and wait for the draft. Who knows, maybe your team will get the next Michael Jordan, Bo Jackson, or Tom Brady. It can even be seen in something as innocent as eating dessert. Your bowl of homemade ice cream is delicious and it's not even half gone yet and you're already thinking of the next delicious treat that you get to have. This is a natural human craving of us, something craving something that we don't have. And it can lead to an unhealthy marriage of eternal optimism, meaning for sure that this next thing is going to go well for us. This is really what we want. Buying into the false promises of advertising. Someday we'll learn that those promises are indeed false and we won't have everything we've ever wanted. Now while we can point to those types of people, there's also another type of, another category of people on the opposite end of the spectrum. They've already got life figured out. No amount of change can possibly make their life any better. They buy the same shirt, the same shoes, the same socks, the same pants, and order the same food at the same restaurant if they ever leave their house. And they take the same route to work, they buy the same seed, drink the same coffee, and you get the picture. Everything is the same. They don't really like change. Now there's something to be said for having a routine, and there's nothing wrong with that. It becomes a problem, though, when we get set in our ways and we start to think that anything different is bad or it's wrong. As Christians, there's a balance that we have to strike between being content with what we have and looking forward to the next great thing, which we are promised is indeed great and better than everything we can imagine. Longing for that future return of Christ. In John chapter 16, Jesus is spending some final moments with his disciples, preparing them for what lies ahead. He's promising them that the best is yet to come, but the disciples would rather keep everything the way it is right now. They can't imagine anything better. I invite you to open your Bibles again to John chapter 16, verses 5 through 15. And if you're able, I'll invite you to stand again out of respect for God's word. John chapter 16, beginning at verse 5, reading through verse 15. Again, reading in Jesus' name. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness... Because I go to the Father, and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. If I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. 
But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will speak not on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, and he, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Father God, these are your words, and your word is true. More than that you would sanctify us in your truth. Lord, we also pray that your Holy Spirit would come and lead and guide us into all truth as your word promises. Father, draw our hearts to you here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's the end of the school year, so for you students, you most likely won't be seeing your classmates every day this summer. Some of you can't wait for it, but others are dreading it. But you'll be back in the fall, except for the graduates. There's a certain amount of excitement that comes with graduation as you close the chapter of that book, or maybe even pick up a whole new book entirely. There's a sense of relief that comes, but for some there's also a sense of sadness. Did anyone see any tears at graduation yesterday or at grad parties? I wasn't around at everyone, so I don't, I didn't, and I wasn't looking for it either. But I'm sure there are some people who have shed a few tears. Some of those tears are happy, others are sad. But why are there tears for this graduation? Isn't it a time of, of celebration? Shouldn't we be happy about what's happening? Well, there's a reality that something is changing here. Soon people will move away to college or join the workforce and life is going to change again. Life goes on and your friends move away or maybe you move away or maybe you're the one leaving your family and your friends. Saying goodbye can be hard and difficult and we don't want to lose our relationships. Jesus is telling his disciples here, I'm leaving you guys. It's not a graduation ceremony or party that he's at. He's a very somber note. They're celebrating the last time where they are all together again before Christ's crucifixion. He's not going to be around much longer, and he knows this, and so he tells his disciples this. And understandably, the announcement saddens the disciples. They didn't want to be, they didn't want their friend to leave. They're going to miss their friend. These last three years have been the best years of their lives. They didn't want to think of what a life without Jesus would be. Just think of what the disciples got to experience on a daily basis. Jesus lived with them. They ate with Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They, were, they traveled with Jesus. They fished with Jesus. They learned with Jesus. They did ministry with Jesus. They were changing the world with Jesus. And now Jesus tells them, I'm leaving you guys. Can we really blame the disciples for being sad? I don't know about you, but I think it'd be pretty great to have had all of these experiences with Jesus, to watch Jesus do miracles and experience them firsthand, to be able to laugh and, and joke around with Jesus. Wouldn't that be great? Jesus tells his disciples something that they have a hard time believing in verse 7. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. It's to your advantage that I leave you. 
The disciples can't believe anything could be better than what they have right now. They're enjoying the company of Jesus. They're celebrating the Passover together with Jesus, reclining at the table together. Things are great. And to think of anything else is just saddening for them. Do they hear what Jesus is saying? Do they trust what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, look ahead. You're actually going to be better off if I leave than if I stay. Something better is coming, Jesus is telling his disciples. Something better is coming. Do the disciples believe that? And do we believe that? Do we really believe that we're actually better off now in 2022 than 2,000 years ago when people were walking side by side with Jesus, shoulder to shoulder? After all, there's that proverb, a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. Shouldn't we be content with what we have now? Isn't it best to be content with what we have than to chase after that which we don't have? And just like that, we're suddenly no different than the disciples. When we idolize that time of Christ walking here on this earth, yes, it would be cool to be there. And yes, I too would love to have experienced that. But Jesus says, it'll be better for you if I go away. We're guilty of the same nearsighted error the disciples have in this text. Jesus says in verse 7, For if I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus tells his saddened disciples that he's going to be sending someone to them. And it's going to be better than having Jesus there living among them. This help wouldn't come in the form of a therapy pet, though that would be nice. But Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. And he explains what the Holy Spirit will do and why it is better for these disciples and for us today if Jesus left during that time. He says in verse 8, The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. We see the job of the Holy Spirit here. The Holy Spirit brings conviction in our lives. And this conviction is more than a firmly held belief. It's not subjective at all. Meaning it doesn't matter what you think about. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what you've experienced. It's reality. The case is closed. The evidence has been revealed, resulting in only two responses. Number one is admitting what the Spirit is convicting us of and repenting of that. Or saying, no, that can't be true. I've seen the evidence. I know the evidence. But that can't be true. I refuse to believe it. And hardening our own hearts. The Spirit brings the cold, hard facts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The question comes, are we willing to accept the truth and accept our guilt? Or do we shrug it off? Say, no, that's not true about me. No, I can't believe that. And just continue going on refusing to believe. We can pause for a second to ask the question, what benefit is there in conviction? We try to avoid being convicted, don't we? We don't like to feel guilty, though at times we generally don't care about being guilty, right? Is that true of us? We like to do things that maybe we could get in trouble with, but we hate finding out that we're actually in trouble. We don't want to be convicted. We just can't stand it when someone else calls it out for what it is, and it irks us. It gets under our skin, and so we avoid it at all costs, and we lie. 
We hide behind the idea, we hide behind others who are worse than ourselves. And we refuse to believe that we are the guilty party. And we come up with a million different excuses for why people shouldn't look at us as guilty, even though we are. We start to say, I have this excuse and this excuse and this excuse. And in reality, what we're saying is, I'm not guilty. I'm the victim here. So you should be on my side. We tend to play the victim card rather than accept our guilt. However, there is freedom in acknowledging reality. There's freedom in recognizing our sin and owning up to it. And that freedom comes in the conviction that the Spirit brings concerning righteousness. We can spend our whole lives trying to earn a right standing before God, trying to explain to ourselves and everyone else why we are the victim here and why we aren't the guilty party, trying to earn a right standing before God, but whatever we do will always fall grievously short. There's only one righteousness that stands in the court of heaven, Christ's righteousness. And that righteousness was won for us on the cross, which is why Jesus says in verse 10, concerning righteousness, and and what is this about concerning righteousness? Because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. This is where this righteousness is found. This is where this righteousness is won in Christ going to the Father and the disciples no longer seeing him. He's talking about his crucifixion. He's talking about his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. His going to the Father and the disciples no longer seeing him anymore. When we're brought to the end of ourselves, when we realize that we are guilty, then the Spirit reveals to us that righteousness that is won by Christ, that righteousness that is perfect, that righteousness that stands in the court of God. And he says, here it is. It's yours. Christ won this for you. And all of a sudden, we don't have to worry about our alibis anymore. We don't have to worry about keeping track of all the lies that we've said. We don't have to worry about coming up with excuses for why we're no longer guilty. But we can say, you know what, I am guilty. But Christ paid for that guilt on the cross in my stead. And Christ won righteousness for me. And I am righteous because Christ has given to me his righteousness. We quit trying to earn our own standing before God and receive the righteousness that Christ won for us. And that's where rest is found. That is where we can have comfort and peace as well. Because it's done and it's finished. This final conviction that the Holy Spirit would bring is the conviction concerning judgment. He says, the ruler of this world, the devil, has been judged. Satan's fate was sealed when life came again into Christ's corpse and Jesus rose victoriously from the grave. The Holy Spirit reveals that reality to us. For whoever continues to reject the truth of Jesus, whoever continues to deny their sin, whoever continues to go on unbelieving, refusing to believe who Jesus is and what he has done, then this judgment of the ruler of the world stands as a stark contrast and a stark notice for what's at stake for those who continue to refuse to believe. Judgment. The pit where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. Those who continue to choose to follow the ruler of this world will be led straight to hell. And it's not just those who actively choose to follow this ruler of this world either. 
But what does Jesus say in verse 9? Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Simply not believing in Jesus is condemning us to hell. Refusing to believe in Jesus is following the ruler of this world to his same judgment and his same destruction. Jesus says it's better for you if I go because the Spirit is coming and the Spirit is coming to prevent that from happening to you. This is why Jesus tells his disciples it's better for them that he goes. He will send the Spirit to bring this conviction. This conviction that yes, you are a poor, miserable sinner. And even though you don't feel it, even though you might consider yourself to be a good human being, a good person, your righteousness is as filthy rags in God's sight. And it doesn't hold up in his court. The righteousness of Christ does, though. And the Spirit comes to convict the world of the promised judgment to come. For the devil whose fate is sealed and for those who refuse to follow Jesus and to remain in their unbelief. Without the Spirit's work in our lives, we continue on as is, oblivious to the danger that we are in. And worse yet, thinking, we're doing okay. We're not guilty here, but we are better than other people, and so we can say we are doing fine. But Jesus explains the benefits of this in a simpler way in verse 13. The Spirit will lead you into all truth. The truth about ourselves as uncomfortable as it may be at times, the truth about Jesus, about who he is and what he has done, the truth about the devil and his, fate is, and his sealed fate. We are sinners and Jesus accomplished righteousness and the devil will be judged. He is a defeated foe. In verse 14, Jesus summarizes the work of the Spirit saying, he will glorify Jesus. The Spirit isn't sent to make a name for himself so we can say, oh look, There's the Holy Spirit. Isn't he cute the way that he is working right now? Isn't it amazing the things that he is doing? The Spirit comes to point people to Jesus. The Spirit comes to convict the world concerning sin, to convict you concerning your sin. The Spirit comes to convict the world concerning righteousness, that it's one not by our own actions, but in Christ and what Christ has done. The Spirit comes to convict or to bring judgment to the devil, that we would all know that. The Spirit comes to magnify and glorify Jesus. He's come to point people to Jesus and glorify Christ in saving souls and drawing them to repentance and faith. And that's where we see the Spirit at work. And that is where Jesus is glorified. As the disciples are listening to Jesus speak these words, the Spirit hadn't yet come. They're still confused and they're still sad. And Peter would, st- would try to prevent what, Jesus, what is going to happen to Jesus. Remember his actions in the garden. Takes out this little dagger and slices off someone's ear. Jesus, no one's going to be taking you. This event is not going to happen. Not on my watch, Lord. And Jesus says, Peter, stop. Put the sword away. Remember, I'm going. And it's going to be better for you if I leave. Let these things play out. I'm trying to save you. But Peter's still trying to stop it. And after Jesus' death, the disciples fear and they hide. And for a little while, they do that. 
Then the resurrected Christ appears to them. The resurrected Christ comes to them and he tells them, wait here for a little while longer because something better is coming. I'm going to leave now, but when he comes, the Holy Spirit is coming. I will send you the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, you will be filled with power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, all of Samaria to the ends of the earth. And on Pentecost, it happened that day when the Spirit came to live inside of these believers, just as Jesus said. And they would finally realize this conviction the Holy Spirit brings of their own sin, of their own righteousness that comes from Christ and of the judgment of this world, removing all fear and trembling from their lives. That was nearly 2,000 years ago. The Spirit has been here ever since. And he continues to do that work today, bringing people to the end of themselves and pointing them to Jesus and what he has accomplished. He's working behind the scenes in the lives of believers, bringing conviction of sin, as well as bringing the comfort of the gospel of Jesus. There's a pastor one day who was taking a walk, thinking to himself, wouldn't it be great to be able to walk with Jesus? Wouldn't it be great to go back to the time of Christ and to live with him, to eat with him, to travel with him, to see all of these experiences and see him face to face? Wouldn't that be wonderful? And then it struck him, these words of Jesus, it's better for you if I go. And then it struck him again what the Spirit call, that the, why the Spirit calls us into congregations. Do you remember what Paul refers to the, the gathering of believers? The body of Christ. Christ has not left us. He has called us into congregations. He has called us to be active members in the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul. The Holy Spirit, the one who leads and guides us into all truth, gives Paul these words to say and to write. And he says this, but now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Brothers and sisters, something better than what the disciples had is here in the congregation. Do you want to eat with Jesus today? There's an opportunity for you after the service ends. Thank you. Thanks again, Jay. And Jay's not going to let you leave without taking a sandwich or two. We get to eat with the body of Christ. Something better than what the disciples had is here in the congregation. The body of Christ can be found here in the gathering of believers. The Holy Spirit does his work here in the congregation through his word and through the sacraments. What would it look like if we realize that the congregation, and by the congregation, I'll define it as our fundamental principles define it, by believers who by using the means of grace and the spiritual gifts as directed by the word of God, seek salvation and eternal blessedness for themselves and their fellow men. What would it look like if we looked at this gathering of believers, this congregation, we began to see it as the body of Christ for what it is. And we desire to be a part of it as much as we desire to sit down and have a cup of coffee with Jesus. How neat would that be? Jesus is found here 
fellowship is found here. Encouragement is found here. Forgiveness is found here. Christ can be found here. He has given to each one of us his spirit in various gifts for the building up of the body of Christ into maturity in which Christ is the head. Do you believe that we're better off today than the disciples when they were rubbing shoulders with Jesus? The Holy Spirit is here leading and guiding us into all truth. The day is coming when we will rub shoulders with Jesus for all eternity, when he calls us to be home with him or when he comes back and takes his church to be with him forever. But the day is here now where the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding us into all truth. The Holy Spirit has called us to be members in the body where he has called us to be a part of this body of Christ. So praise the Lord. And let's look and see the congregation for that beautiful gift that has been given to us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and for its truth. God, it can be hard for us to imagine that we have it better now than what your disciples did 2,000 years ago. Lord, we want to see you. We want to walk with you. We want to talk with you. We want to interact with you. We want to go back to those days, the days of the New Testament congregation. But God, you have given us this gift here as well. You have given us your word and its truth. You have given to us your Holy Spirit. You have given each one of us gifts to be used for the furtherance of your kingdom and the building up of the body of Christ in love so that we can all be pursuing maturity in you. We thank you for that. God, we thank you for the conviction that your Holy Spirit comes and and brings into our own lives, convicting us of, yes, we are poor, miserable sinners who sin against you each and every day, but also, Lord, convincing us of and convicting us of the righteousness that you have won on the cross for us in our place and in our stead so that we might have peace with God. Thank you for that gift and for also convicting, convicting us that there is judgment that the devil and all of his angels have been judged. Lord, there is judgment for all those who continue to refuse to believe in you. We pray that you would spare us from this judgment. Help us to believe in you. And God, we pray that you would use us to bring this life-giving message of salvation, that Christ can be found here, that you are alive and well in this world. You sent your spirit to be calling sinners to salvation. Lord, do that work in our hearts. Do that work in the lives of those here today. And Lord, for those in the lives of those in our communities as well. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.